0: Comedy is a weird thing. It's, um, even though it's, it seems foolish and silly and crazy, comedy has the most to say about the human condition. If you laugh, you can get by. You can struggle when things are bad. If you can get a sense of humor.
1: That was writer, director, producer, and comedy legend Mel Brooks speaking with director Robert Trachtenberg for American Masters. Mel Brooks, make a noise. At 91 years old, Mel Brooks has had several careers worth of successes and is on the astounding 12-person list of people who have won an Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony Award, a.k.a. an EGOT. A few of his most popular film credits include Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein, Spaceballs, History of the World Part One*, and Robin Hood Men in Tights. Um, I know every single word of that last one. But before he became Mel Brooks, he was Melvin Kaminsky, an 18-year-old boy in the U.S. Army during World War II. During this time, he served as a corporal in the 1104 Engineer Combat Battalion and was responsible for defusing enemy landmines at the front line. Not the back line, not the middle line, right at the front.
0: The Army was very good to me. They gave me a rifle and a helmet and a bed and something to eat and throw up with. And they sent me on a Liberty ship in the middle of January in the Atlantic and sent me to Europe. I was with the combat engineers, and at one point, I was near Saarbrücken, and the, uh, the Germans were only a few miles away across a creek or a river. And uh, that night... I could actually hear them singing something in German. Ja, 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 reingesputt, was is gemacht, something in, ja, 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 ich kann nicht was machen und boom, boom. And so I picked up a a big bullhorn and I said, well, I'll sing to them. So I sang... Tut toot, tut toot, tootsie, goodbye. Don't cry, Tutty, don't cry. That choo-choo train, that takes me away from you. You'll never know how sad i may out of Tutty, And then I'll be coming again. Wait for the mail. I'll never fail. You don't get a letter. You know I'm in jail. Ha, ha, ha. Goodbye, Tutty. goodbye. Don't cry, Tutsi. goodbye. And I actually heard. I heard some. Sure. They really liked it, you know. I think I, think, I think I could have ended the war right then and there, but uh, General Patton or somebody kept going. And I got to know a little more about Hitler being a soldier than I did with just hearsay reading in New York newspapers. But uh, I was aware that he was not a nice person. Strangely enough, I didn't know anything about concentration camps. Not until I actually was in Europe, in the war. It took a long time to make any kind of human sense out of that. And to this day, I'm, it's heartbreaking and mysterious that human beings could do that to other human beings to this day. And I never thought of doing anything about Hitler until after I got back from Europe, from the army, and I was discharged, and I... And I realized this this guy was very valuable. I had an idea for a show, a play, in which the presenters could make more money with a flop than they can with a hit. So I said, what would make them get up and leave the theater? I said, how about a big musical called Springtime for Hitler? And the minute they sing Springtime for Hitler, maybe half the audience would say, oh, and get up and leave and that he wouldn't have to worry about it being a hit because he, was, he raised too much money and he could keep all the money and go to Rio. So that's where Hitler became more and more important to me. I was more interested in human, human behavior, human survival, and still wanted it to be funny. And, and, and I, I, I made my life making people laugh even though a lot of it was disturbing and
1: real. After the war, Mel Brooks began writing for television, working with the legendary comedian Sid Caesar on his various shows. It was around this time that he decided he wanted to write a satire about a pair of producers scheming to put on a play called, of course, Springtime for Hitler.
0: There's a lot of TV, a lot of sitcoms, and they never appealed to me. And I I read a book by Nikolai Gogol, and and I'd, and I'd, I'd read this book, and I'd say, gee this guy is really good. Or I'd, I'd read, I don't know, Dostoevsky or Tolstoy, or I don't know, I'd, I'd be in love with stuff that wasn't sitcoms. Even Get Smart, which was crazy and silly, it still had to do with, I don't know, human personality rather than, than a sitcom. That was a very hard sell. As a matter of fact, we did Get Smart with with you know the wonderful Don Adams. And uh, after a season, one season only, NBC canceled it and we were, I was out of a job. And then they couldn't find a, I don't know, they didn't find something to replace it. So they ran it in other seasons and it caught on. And then they ran it in other seasons and it was a hit. And so for the next five years, money was coming in. And then I said, well, maybe I can, I can finish a a book uh, that I was writing called Springtime for Hitler. And I was gonna, I was gonna write this book I showed it to some friends and I showed it to some publishers and they said, too much dialogue, not enough narrative. They said, maybe it's a play. Good. So I turned Springtime for Hitler into a play and I took it to Kermit Bloomgarden, who did Death of a Salesman. And I said, Kermit, how about this play? And he said, it's too many sets. You've got too many places and and, and it's going to be too expensive. You know, the, the cliche is... One set, five characters. And here I had 35 sets and 28 characters. He said, it's gonna be too expensive. So I said, what do I do? He said, I think it's a movie. So I began to write Springtime for Hitler as a movie. And I went everywhere. Nobody wanted it. They said it was too crazy. And then I met a guy called Sidney Glazier. And he said, read it to me. So I began reading it to him. And when I got to, to Springtime for Hitler, He got very excited. He fell down laughing and and spit out the tuna fish. And he said, we got to do it. We got to do it. So we went everywhere, to Paramount. We went to Warner Brothers. Universal said they might do it, but they didn't. They said if you could change Hitler to Mussolini, it would be better because people like Mussolini. They don't like Hitler that much. I said, well, you really don't get it. These guys are putting on a flop, not a hit. In order to get a flop, They have to rave about Hitler, and people would walk out, and then they'd raise too much money, and they'd keep the money, and forget it. And finally, Sidney introduced me to Joseph E. Levine. At at that point, Joseph E. Levine was making movies for Embassy. The movies were called Hercules, and then Hercules Unchained, and then Hercules Nearly Changed, and Hercules Changed again. All these Hercules movies were making money. And he, he liked Springtime for Hitler. And he said, I'll do it. And we, we start to make springtime for Hitler. And then Joe Levine calls and says, it can't be called that. I called all the Jews that own movie houses. And they said, no, you can't. You gotta get another name. So I said, okay, I'll get another name. I'll call it um, the producers. That's ironic because they were anything, anything but producers. And so Zero Mustel was hired to do it. it. It was difficult to direct Zero Mustel. I'd never directed before, and he he simply wasn't taking direction from anybody. And so I I really had to be careful about not hurting his feelings and still getting what I want. And for the most part, it was difficult, but so rewarding in terms of his talent. I mean, he was such a great, great artist, but no trouble at all from Gene Wilder. There was one night, it got to be 5.30 or 6, and I said, I want you to do the wacky scene where you you really go crazy. And he said, I'm really tired. Can't we do it tomorrow morning? And I said, no, I need it. I really need it tonight. So he said, "But I'm exhausted. I said, well, what would give you some some spirit? He said, well, chocolate. I said, okay. I got him some chocolate, and I'd say, eat slow. I said, okay. Finally, he got to be... uh, finished with it and I said, have a black, some black coffee. He said, I don't drink coffee. I said, drink it tonight. He said, I don't drink coffee. I don't like coffee. I said, drink it tonight. Do it. Drink the coffee. And he said, "Okay, you know, and he he drank the coffee. Now, I think I went too far because he was, he was, he was nuts. And, and he did this crazy scene in which He's, his name was Leo Bloom and he he was working f- for Max Bialystock as as an as an accountant and Bialystock tried to woo him into joining him with creating springtime for Hitler and 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 Gene was dipped by him and finally he dropped him he nearly jumped on him he had a nervous breakdown in the corner and it, it's a great scene where you know where where Gene Gene goes bananas and I, you know, I shot it twice, but the first take was it. It was, it was just brilliant. You know, I think my movies are really about, philosophically anyway, money or love. And in every movie I make, I always have them decide that love is better. In the producers, their scheme, Bialystok's scheme, is to make a bundle of money, a real bundle of money, millions, and go to, and, and go to Rio. And in the end, they end up being arrested and in court and bloom confesses how much Bialystok means to him and how happy they are to have found each other and and their affection for each other and their respect for each other than than money bloom was just a caterpillar who would never become a butterfly until Bialystok became his catalyst and Bialystok was just a just a crook who just wanted a lot of money and didn't care about people and art and 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 theater until bloom showed him the, the glory of what he was actually doing. But uh, nobody came. Joseph E. Levine did not spend any money, and it was kind of a, a surprise. There was a bag lady who came. There was me and Alpha Betty Olsen who helped me cast it and helped me write it, and her husband, David Patch now. It used to be David Miller. But anyway, there was me and David and Betty and a bag lady. That was four, and two people with Joseph E. Levine from his company, and there were four of them. So altogether, in a 1600 seat house, there were eight people. <laughs> so I thought we had a failure completely. Anyway, I threatened, I threatened Mr. Levine with uh, a lawsuit, with, with taking it somewhere else, with buying it back. And, and I finally got him to open it at the Fine Arts Theater in New York City on 58th Street between Columbus and Madison. I came there early Friday morning, and there was a line around the block. How? What was the magic? How did they know? Who knew that the producers was a movie to see? A line around the block. To this day, I don't know why. And it was packed, and it got kind of mixed reviews. When it opened, uh, there was a woman who wrote for the New York Times. Her name was Renata Adler, and she crucified it. She called it the worst picture in the world and in very bad taste with Hitler and the leading man was too fat. <laughs> Zero was too, And I, you know, I thought that, well, that, that's the end of my career. But then Gene Shalit came up and said, no one will be seated for the first 88 minutes of this movie. They'll all be on the floor laughing their head off. And you know, so that was a big, so it got mixed reviews and it ran. It just ran. Well, I, always, I tell you, the truth is, I always believed that you could get even with a dictator by making people laugh at him, rather than getting on a soapbox and trying to play vocal ping pong and, and having a point of view about democracy versus totalitarianism. And I said, if you can just make people laugh at Mussolini, make them laugh at Hitler, make them laugh at all, all you know, uh, uh, dictators, they, they would be defeated by, by laughter. Uncle Joe was about four feet seven inches tall, and I was, I don't know, about nine years old. He drove a cab, and uh, when you saw a cab come down the street without a driver, that was Joe. You just saw just a cab rolling by itself, and he 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 sat on many telephone books. It didn't help because in those days nobody had a telephone. They were about a half an inch thick at the most, you know. And Joe used to work in the Broadway area. He drove a cab, and when he was finished for the night, at one or two in the morning, he would take home the the doorman at restaurants and at at Broadway shows. And they were kind, you know, in return to him. And so one time, the doorman, I think at the Alvin Theatre, 1935, a show had opened by Cole Porter called Anything Goes. And he gave Joe, my Uncle Joe, two tickets to a matinee. And so Joe took me. He said, get in the cab. And I was sitting in his cab. He said, we're going to go to the album. We're going to go to New York and and see this. And he said, get down. Get down on the floor. So I got down on the floor because the flag was up. If you put the flag down, you had a fare. If the flag was up, you were empty and the light was on. So he, he said, get down. I've got to keep the flag up and and I could get a ticket if somebody sees somebody in the back. So I, I lay down on the floor, and I knew we were going over the Lindenhurst Bridge when I heard a certain hum on the wheels. And we got to 54th Street or something, or 52nd, wherever the album. And we we walked. We he parked there was plenty of parking. 1935, you could park anywhere. There were like 10 cars, you know. So we get into the alley Theater and we walk up the balcony. We walk up another balcony, and finally. We're at the last row in the last balcony, you know, like a thousand miles from the stage, and thr- it was thrilling. And even then, Ethel Merman started singing, it was too loud. I mean, you know, it's, she had an incredible voice. And I, I heard these songs, I heard these songs, these Cole Porter songs, like uh, You're the Top and All Through the Night, and one beautiful song, a peppy song after another. And I think, I said to myself, one day I'm going to have a show on Broadway. It took 60 years, but I finally did get to write a musical for Broadway. But it really was so thrilling. so, And I knew somehow that no factories for me, no driving a cab, no working, renting bicycles. I mean, there were many little jobs and stuff. I said, no, I'm going to be... I'm going to write things that are in my soul and in my heart and I'm going to be in show business. And I knew it. And I knew at nine no matter what. And when I was in the Army and, 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 and during the war, I said, i got to live through this. i got to be in show business. I better, you know, I was, I, I was very lucky I was short because the, if they shot, it went over my head, you know. But uh, I, I really made up my mind no matter what, that's what I was going to do. I was going to be in the theater, I was going to be in whatever avenues I could, but it would be show business. And I was going to enjoy my life and have fun and and live that kind of life. And I did.
1: The American Masters podcast is produced by Joe Skinner with sound engineering by John Berman, Ed Campbell, and Josh Broom. Original artwork for the American Masters podcast has been designed by Christiana Lombardo. For American Masters, we'd like to give a special thanks to series producer Julie Sachs and supervising producer Junko Tsunashima. And I have been your host, Anna Dresden. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher for future episodes. And visit the American Masters website at pbs.org slash American Masters for very cool digital archive gems, past episodes, and more. Come back in two weeks for our next episode of the American Masters podcast.